The sermon today is titled, Take Refuge in the King. Take Refuge in the King. The Magi got Christmas right. The Magi got Christmas right. As Tommy read out of Matthew chapter 2, the Magi came to see the newborn king. Christmas is about the birth of the king, Jesus Christ. And today we're focusing on the king. And we're going to be turning to the book of Psalms to learn more about the king that came on Christmas morning. We'll be at Psalm chapter 2. But as you're turning there, I want to teach a little bit about the book of Psalms. You may be asking, what is the book of Psalms? Well, the book of Psalms is the largest book in the entire Bible. Where compilers have assembled 150 psalms or songs, broken into five books or sections, with multiple authors. King David being the, the dominant author, who was written roughly about 75 of the 150. Sons of Korah, Solomon, even Moses wrote a psalm. And it took a thousand years to write all 150 psalms. A thousand years. And the oldest psalm is Psalm 90, which was written by Moses, written roughly around 1400 B.C. 1400 B.C. The last psalm that was written was Psalm 126, 126. And it's a psalm about returning from exile and Roughly 400, 450 B.C. is when that was written. So a thousand years it took to write all the 150 psalms. And there's different classification, different types of psalms. There's wisdom psalms, trust psalms, pilgrim psalms, thanksgiving psalms, psalms of lament, praise, and royal psalms. And the book of psalms is quite significant and Demonstrated by how many times it's been quoted. This is the most quoted Old Testament book in the entire New Testament. Roughly two-thirds of the Psalms have been quoted by New Testament authors. Significant. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the Psalms, or the Psalter, is the whole forest in an acorn. The whole forest in an acorn, meaning the entire theology of the Bible is encased in the Psalter, or the book of Psalms. You can find out everything you need to know about God in the book of Psalms. R.C. Sproul says that the Psalms are written in a way that we can understand. In Psalms 1 and Psalms 2, the first two Psalms are key Psalms. As the compilers have strategically placed Psalms 1 and Psalms 2, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 at the beginning. And they're linked together. Psalm 1.1 says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's how Psalm 1 begins. In Psalm 2, at the end, Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessing are the two bookends of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're the brackets that keeps all the thoughts, a theology of Psalms encased to one another. They're tied together. And Steve Lawson says that these are the gatekeepers for the entire Psalter. The entire book of Psalms, you need to pass through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in order to understand the whole book. And this is the access way into worshiping God properly. Meaning, if we don't understand and embrace the theology that's in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we absolutely miss it and we, we, we are not blessed people. We need to understand Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 to be blessed people. Psalm 1 is about the, about the righteous man and the wicked man and how the blessed man submits to God's word. There is the righteous and there is the wicked, but the blessed man is the one who submits to God's word. Amen? We are people of the book. Psalm 2, which we're going to preach on today, is about the eternal king. We need to get the king right. And the blessed man takes refuge in God's king. So this is what we're focusing in on. Psalm chapter uh, 2 today, the second psalm. And this is perhaps one of the most significant psalms. Is This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted in Acts, Hebrews, and Revelation. In Acts 4.25, 
Paul, uh, the author says that David authored Psalm 2. And it is a royal psalm about the king, about the eternal king. So let's rise and let's read Psalm 2 together. Written by David about the king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the king. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for how theology, rich theology about you is packed into the book of Psalm. But thank you how Psalm 2 is clearly about you, the king. We know that you came on Christmas morning and you are the newborn king on Christmas morning. But Lord, help us to understand more about who you are. You are the king. And teach us how to take refuge in, in him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Psalm 2, just a little bit of structure. As we're learning about how to study the Psalms and to preach the Psalms, Psalm 2 is broken up into four parts. Four stanzas of three, four sets of three. Four sets of three. Stanza 1, what we're going to focus in on, the first three verses, the king's outspoken rebels, all right? Stanza two, the next three verses, the king's one reply. Stanza three, the king's only ruler. And stanza four, the king's offer of refuge. Four sets of three. This might help us follow along. I'll make sure to go over the points again, but those are the points ahead of time. This week I was reading an article titled, Allies, China and Russia are ganging up on America. This headline kind of grabbed me, so I was reading it. Here's a quote from this article. The three-decade-old nightmare of Washington policymakers has come true. Beijing, Moscow have ganged up on America. Russian President Vladimir Putin calls Chinese President Xi Jinping... His dear friend. He's my dear friend. Chinese foreign ministers say the United States could no longer, can no longer talk to China from a position of strength now. How does this make you feel? What thoughts come through your mind right now as I just read you some of the quotes from this article? If you saw that headline, would you click on it and read this article as well? Would it capture your attention? Well, this feeling that you may be feeling right now was very common in Israel. Nations were ganging up on Israel constantly. Whether it's King David or King Solomon, on and on, they had enemies constantly trying to dethrone their king and also take over their land. This was very common. Nations were constantly coming after her. And stanza one of this psalm, which is 
titled The King's Outspoken Rebels, verses, which covers verses 1 through 3, begins with the voice of the psalmist. Verse 1 and 2 says, Why are the nations in uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Why? 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 David writes in a rhetor- gives out a rhetorical question. He's bewildered. Who are these people thinking? Who do they think they are? What would possess them to do something crazy like this? This is the nations are in an uproar. They're in commotion. They're in rage. In a state of rage, they're unsettled. Which leads the people to come together and devise a vain plan. This idea of devising a vain plan talks about murmuring together, whispering together, making a lot of noise. We're going to take over. We're going to take over. And this is the kings of the earth, whether it's the pharaohs or Caesars or czars or presidents or prime ministers, come together to take counsel together. Let's dig our heels and let's make a coalition. Let's put our forces together. Let's make an alliance. Let's form friendships. Friendships. And verse 2 talks about to set ourselves against the Lord. That's talking about Yahweh. Your our Lord, your Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, let's break their bonds apart, let's take the shackles off of us and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 has some near and far revelation. The near revelation was near who was anointed. David was anointed the king. Kings after that, the Davidic line, that king after king after king after king. Certainly the nations were coming against Yahweh and the anointed kings. But the far revelations talk about the Messiah, which, who would come on Christmas morning, approximately a thousand years later after David. Anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Just talk about Jesus Christ, ultimately. And these first three verses, this whole section, how the nations are rebelling against God and His anointed one, is a commentary on, human, on our human condition. Talking about human depravity, how mankind, in the core of our hearts, in our unredeemed hearts, hates God and His anointed one, the Christ. How the nations are opposing the Lord and His anointed. Charles Spurgeon writes, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. These first three verses sum up the human condition. We're sinners and we hate God. Why? 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 You may be thinking to yourself as a non-believer, I don't hate God. I believe in God. You know, these nations, they're trying to do good things. They're trying to take care of one another, take care of each other. Why? Well, the Bible says, just like their father is the devil, the devil, when he was in heaven, described in Isaiah 14, says that Lucifer, who is the devil, wanted to set his throne above the stars of God. He wanted to rule over God. And then when Satan slithered into the garden, the temptation that he gave to Eve was, take this fruit and eat of it. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, take this and you decide what's good for you and what's bad for you. Don't worry about God. You decide. Man wants, wants, wants to do what's right in his own eyes. At the end of the day, Men and women want to do what's right in their own eyes. They want to rule every nation, whether it's Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Russia, China, the United States of America. Every leader, every ruler wants power. This is what this is about. I want control over my life. This is my life. 
And they're making a lot of noise. Let's take these chains off of us. God is holding us back. I want to break off these cords. I'm tired of God holding me back. I'm tired of letting God weigh me down. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to rely on God's word, which tells me about relationships. I want to form my own type of relationships. I don't want to turn to God's word to see how to spend my money. I don't want to turn to God's word to define what sexuality is. I don't want to turn to God's word to how to run and lead a family. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what's comfortable for me. This is the theology, the philosophy of the day, is it not? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So there's no peace in this world. There's no peace. There's always restlessness, always striving for power and control, always looking for more, always disappointed that things promised are broken. These things don't provide hope and peace. And the world is raising its puny fist towards God right now. And it always has since the fall. And they don't want to do God's way. And they're rebels against God. So what is God's response to all of this? Stanza 2 is about the king's one reply. Reply out of verses 4 through 6. The scene, the scene shifts from earth now into heaven. We're into heaven now. And David describes God's response. God was not pacing back and forth, scratching his head, wondering, what happened? What happened? Oh no, the people are not happy with me. God isn't pacing back and forth, concerned. Do I need to change my plans? Oh no. How am I going to give them what they want so they'll love me again? God isn't doing that. God isn't doing that. Let's, look, let's turn to verse 4. Stanza number 2 says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits who's enthroned in heaven. God the Father is enthroned in heaven. He's supreme ruler. His throne sits above earth. There are no thrones above him. He is all ruling, all sovereign over everything. And God laughs because he knows how absurd this is, how irrational this is, how futile this is. It's all noise. And the Lord, in verse 4, the second part, the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one, is unmoved. He, he scoffs at them. He's unmoved. I know what I'm going to do. There are no negotiations. There's no peace treaty between man and God. There are no negotiations in his mind. And in Isaiah 40, verse 22, God describes, God is described as sitting on his throne over the earth, and he looks down upon earth. The earth's inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him. Like insects hopping around aimlessly. What are these people doing? I formed them out of dust. Do they really think that they're going to take over? This is God. But verse 5, suddenly, without warning, laughter turns into anger. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger. Anger. He will speak to them. His countenance changes from laughter. His nostrils are flared. And now he speaks. God is angry towards sinners. This is God's response. Think about it. How does he feel about what he sees today? He's sitting on the throne watching everything, listening to everything that's being said and written and done. Blatantly, our culture is immoral. Since the fall, it's been a perverse generation but a lot of it was kept under the radar. A lot of things were kept in the dark, in the closet, so to speak. But now it's out in the open, parading itself down Main Street, USA. This is where we're at, church. This is the culture that we're at. And this is what God sees sitting on his throne, looking down upon these grasshoppers. 
And oftentimes you could tell the health of the society by how the society takes care of the children. Our culture is coming after innocent blood, is it not? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You have to watch every single commercial. You have to watch every single cartoon. You have to watch every single book. You have to understand what's happening in the schools. They're coming after innocent blood. This is where our culture is at. And this is what God sees. It's one thing to try to go after the adults who know better, but this is, they're going after innocent blood right now. That's the state of our society right now. And this is what God sees. And look what happens next at the second part of verse 5. And, and terrify them in his fear, saying, God is not trying to comfort us. God is not saying, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's going to be fine, sinners. This is meant to terrify the kings, the rulers, the nations, the people. That God is meaning to capture the attention of the rebellious. And look at what his one reply is. Saying, verse 6 now, but as for me, all that tough talk, all that noise that the world is making, all the, all the sounds that the crickets are making is, is irrelevant. But as for me, God says, he says only one statement, and this one statement is the only statement that matters. Verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I have enthroned my king. I have anointed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's always been plan A. God never had, had to resort to plan B. It's always been plan A. God had a king in mind, and God king is going to rule. I've installed my king. From Zion, the city of David, my holy mountain, from the line of David. Psalm 2, many commentators believe, was used as a coronation psalm, meaning when new kings of Israel were installed, from perhaps from David to Solomon, on and on and on, they would sing these songs. There's a purpose for every psalm that was written. Coronation psalm. But right here, in heaven, God the Father says, I, God, I, meaning God the Father, is coronating his son. This is a heavenly coronation taking place. And which takes us to stanza number three. The king's only ruler. King's only ruler. Covers verse seven through nine. The scene gets more intimate now as we get to enter into the conversation between the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, is going to let us in to what's, what they're talking about, this private conversation that was taking between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. Verse 7, I, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity will surely tell the decrees of the Lord, of God the Father. Jesus says, I'm not going to let you in to what God the Father told me. Right? And so let's listen in here. Verse 8, it says, uh, verse 7, I will surely tell the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, God the Father said to God the Son, you, God the Son, are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. This is very common. In, 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 in when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in Mark 1, verse 11, says, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Second Samuel, turn to Second Samuel to the left, chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, this is called the Davidic covenant. This is the promise made from God to David. This is the Davidic covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. And this is what God promises to David. Verse 13. 2 Samuel 7, 13. Second portion of verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through your line, David, you will have a king. Through your family line, a king is coming that's going to rule forever. Forever. A divine king. 
Only a divine king lives forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. You are my son. This is talking about that relationship. The God's son is going to be the king. So when it says here in verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2, he said to me, you are my son. You are going to be the king. To the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. And he goes on to say, today I have begotten you. What does this mean? I have begotten you. This is not talking that, about what the cults teach as if Jesus Christ was a created God or is a lesser God than the Father. Jesus Christ is co-eternal with God the Father. Same glory, same attribute, same power, forever eternal, the creator of all things, never been created. Jesus Christ is God himself, second member of the Trinity. But Hebrews chapter 1 talks about this psalm and talks about how Christ was incarnated. Christmas morning when Jesus Christ, fully God, took on human skin and was what's begotten, where the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and Jesus Christ miraculously enters into the world. Miraculously enters into the world. And also, if you were turned with me to Acts 13. Acts 13 is in the New Testament after the book of John. Turn to your right. Acts 13. Paul explains what this means as well. Acts 13 from verse 33. So this is where Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is quoted in Acts 13 here. And Paul explains what he means, what this means. Verse 33, that David has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, raised up Jesus from the dead, as it is also written in the second Psalm. Look at that. You are my son. Today I've begotten you, quote, end quote. Verse 34, as for the fact that he, God the Father, raised him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken this, in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ incarnated, but Jesus Christ was confirmed the Son of God because he resurrected from the grave. That's what Paul is saying. Today I have begotten you. And through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that confirmed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4 says the same thing. The resurrection confirms that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Simply put, put the resurrection from the dead without a shadow of doubt proved to anyone that Jesus is God himself, the eternal king. And after he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. And then the conversation continues. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 now. The conversation continues. Isn't this amazing? The Father says, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Ask of me. Just like a, only a child could ask their dad for something, right? Ask of me, whatever you want. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. God the Father is planning to give God the Son everything. Rule over everything, all of creation. God the Son has total reign over everything. And every single soul, this is how it relates to us, church family, every single soul will deal with the king someday. Since Christ has reign and rule over everyone, everything, everyone that's been born will have to deal with the king someday. Cannot avoid them. Cannot avoid them. And in verse 9, continue on with the father and son conversation in heaven, the father commands the son to do something to the nations that he has inherited. 
Verse 9, you, Jesus, shall break them with a rod of iron, an iron scepter. You shall shatter them like earthenware or clay pots. You see, as God gives, the Father gives Jesus the title to all of creation, the Father commands him to judge all these rebels. Judgment. This is talking about judgment. And, and David is using some vivid imagery. A metal pole crushing, smashing, and mashing, and mashing these clay pots. This is what you're to do, my son, when I hand you the kingdom. And what does this look like? Well, let's turn to Revelation. Revelation is at the end of the Bible. Why are we doing this? Is this. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. All right, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. We look for scripture that explain, help, help us understand what the Bible is saying. Revelation 6, 15. Look what happens to the great kings of the earth. 615, Revelation 615, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They're hiding from the king who's coming. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him. Who's that? The king who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the, of the lamb. They know judgment's coming at this point. In that day, every mighty, every weak, every rich, every poor man or woman, child or old, if they're not in Christ, is going to be screaming for the mountains to cover them up out of terror of experiencing judgment of the Lord. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Those who are living when Christ returns are going to want to hide. They're going to try to hide from the king. Let's turn to Revelation 20, verse 11. Turn to your right a few more chapters here. The Bible says that death itself cannot even keep you from Christ, the king. Everyone will have to face the king someday. Verse 11. Then... I saw a great white throne. There is a throne again. Him who sat upon it, Jesus Christ, the king, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No one wants to face the king. Not even creation wants to face the king. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. The dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Listen, what, this, what the Bible is saying right here is this. Even upon death, the, the king is coming after you. The king is summoning those who have died to judge, to judge them. Death itself cannot separate you from the king. No one can run from the king. You can't hide from the king. You can't avoid the king. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell, eternal judgment. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In verse 15. These are the clay pots that are judged. Pulverized, pulverized, pulverized until it's dust. It's nothing that could bring them back together. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, there's nothing that we could do to avoid the king. We can't hide. We can't hide from our Christian friends. We can't hide and find a new way of life. You can't hide and move to a different state. That's irrelevant. Even the mountains can't hide you, it says. But even if you were to die, God is still coming after you. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. And David uses vivid imagery to let us know how serious is no one can escape the king? Church family, you may be wondering, why is pastor preaching on Psalm 2 today? You might be thinking that. That might have crossed your mind right here. I brought my friend and, um, who needs to hear the gospel. Why are you talking about Psalm 2 today? Well, Psalm 2 is a glorious psalm. And psalm 2 is really about the gospel the first three stanza are absolutely necessary to frame out the fourth stanza. 
You need to know the third, first, second, third stanza to understand the weight and the glory of the fourth stanza. In the gospel, you need to understand the bad news in order to understand the good news and to embrace the good news. Stanza one is about human depravity and how that leads us to rebel against God. We're sinners. Stanza two is about God's response towards sinners. He's angry towards sinners. He's not okay with sinners. Stanza three is about God's king who rules and who's going to execute judgment upon unforgiven sinners. Now stanza four. We need to hear all that to understand the amazing grace and mercy of stanza four. The king's offer of refuge. This is verse 10 through 12. Four sets of three. Four sets of three. The king's offer of refuge. There's a drastic shift here now from the intensity of nostrils and iron smashing and bashing clay pots. There's a drastic shift to the tone of this whole psalm. Let me read it in whole here. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. We don't know when he's coming back. It could happen like that. But look how it ends up. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Good news. Good news, church family. And what does it mean to take refuge in the king? What does that mean? Well, I believe from verse 10, 11, 12, it tells us what, this, what it looks like to take refuge in the king. It's very clear. This psalm is crystal clear. Verse 10, it says, O kings, show discernment. Show that you understand, people of the earth, prominent people. Show that you understand that you've been in rebellion against God. That you actually want to rule your life. You may say, I believe in God, but you actually want to be God. Admit it. Show discernment that you are a sinner. Fall, fall short of the glory of God. For all of us like sheep have gone astray. Right? We're all sinners. And then the next thing, how to, how to come under the refuge of the king? The second part of verse 10. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Take warning. God is angry with the sinners. That's what it, that the scriptures are saying. There's imminent judgment coming. It's happening. It's going to happen. In that day, it's going to happen. And unforgiveness of unforgiven sinners will be banished to eternal hell, thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. Take warning. Do you hear the warning? He who has ears, let him hear. And the third, third way, third step in taking refuge in the king is out of verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence. Worship Yahweh. You'll worship Yahweh. God is not here to build our kingdom. He's not our cosmic Santa Claus to give us what we want in life. That's not how this works. We serve him as Lord. How you worship is by serving him. We do what the Lord wants. We do what the king tells us to do. We serve the king's agenda. We are interested in building up his kingdom, not our kingdom. And how do we do it? By submitting to his word. Psalm chapter 1. How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. How blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, the word of God. Fourth way, fourth progression on how to take refuge in the king. Rejoice, verse 11, that's the second portion. Rejoice with trembling. You and I know who's been redeemed by God know that we bring nothing to the table. All our good works are like filthy rags, the Bible says. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. God showed me amazing grace to treat me this way. Therefore, how else can we respond with, with rejoicing, with fear and trembling? We take God seriously. It's a weighty thing to say that I actually believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I know who he is. I know what I've done to him. I know the judgment that I have escaped. 
from hell into heaven, from being imprisoned to sin to be set free as a son or daughter of God. I understand this. So I'll rejoice with trembling. Like, I don't take this lightly. I take God seriously. What offer that God has given me. And then fifthly, verse 12 at the top, do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. The Bible says, kiss the son, kiss the king. What does that mean? A little bit of context. In the day of David, when kings were conquered, you know what they did? If they didn't get killed in battle, they would capture the king, tie him up, drag him into the throne room of the greater king. And if the king was being, feeling merciful and, and gracious, he'll allow him to kiss his hand. And when that lesser king kissed the hand or kissed the scepter of the greater king, what, he, what that lesser king was saying is, I'm not king, you're my king now. I don't have a nation, I'm part of your nation now. I'm not building my kingdom, I'm here to support you and build your kingdom. Kiss the son, the psalmist says. Church family, this is good news. This is the gospel. Our king is a gracious and merciful king. He's saying, kiss the Son. Come to Christ. What did the Magi do in in Matthew 2? They took to the ground and worshipped Him. They kissed the Son. The Magi had it right. They knew what Christmas was about. They knew that they're in the presence of the King. They got down and paid homage to the King. How blessed are all who take refuge in them. How happy. It is all good now. How secure at every level of my life. How graced I am. Remember what we talked about earlier. Every soul must deal with the king. Every single soul. Every single soul. If you're in here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your king, as your Lord and Savior, you will face the king in a different way someday, as we read earlier. Judgment waits you. And you cannot run. You cannot hide. There's no escaping the king. There's nowhere to hide from the king. Even the mountains can't hide you from the king. There's no running from the king. You can't go to a universe that's far away enough to escape the king. There is no refuge from the king. There's absolutely no refuge from the king. And what does our gracious king say when he started his public ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I give you the offer of peace. Come to me, repent. Turn from your sinful ways and come to me as your king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The only place where we can be safe from the king, as the Bible says, is to take refuge in the king. Are you in Christ today? If you want to have refuge from the king, you need to be in the king. And really what happens here in this whole psalm is this. Who does God save us from? As R.C. Sproul says, God saves us from himself. There's no running from the king. But he graciously allows us to enter into a relationship with him. We must be with the king. You got to kiss the son. You have no choice. You need to kiss the son. Jesus Christ. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Does that not sound better now? Now that we went through the first three stanzas? How glorious is the gospel now? We understand this is what we're having to face apart from the grace of God. And what? What I love about this ending of verse 12 is how blessed are all, A-L-L, all, all. This offer is open to all, not just to the kings, not just to the rulers, not just to the rich, but to everybody, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every single person has this offer to them. Perhaps you're sitting there right now, Pastor, I've made too many mistakes. I've done too many horrible things. 
Well, Jesus Christ said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ said, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. You're exactly who he came for today. How is this even possible? Well, Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The king coming on Christmas morning will eventually go to the cross and die for mankind, for his people, to pay for the price and debt of our sin. Jesus Christ took on the Father's wrath. Verse 9, he took on the wrath, the wrath that we all deserve, so that he could offer you his hand. Take his hand. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Even after death, you can't escape the king either, though, in a good way. The king will not forget about you, even when you die physically. Isn't that a good news? The other alternative is if you're not in Christ, he won't forget about you either, but you're going to be judged. The good news is that even before we die, if you're in Christ, he's coming after you. He's never going to forget you. Jesus says no one will be able to snatch you out of the Father's hands. Nobody. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive way. There's no other name under the heavens to salvation but Christ, the Bible says. Jesus says, come to me and drink living water. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. This is the king. See, we got to understand that Jesus Christ is king. He's the lion and the lamb. We need to see both sides of the same coin for who Jesus Christ is. To come fully under his lordship. To fully come under his kingship in our lives. And Jesus promises at the end, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Come to Christ. He will not turn you away. If he's called you, and you know because your heart is pricked, he will not turn you away. This is a promise from the king. Friends, you need to take refuge in the king. Church family, if you're already in Christ, but you're kind of captured by a sin, you need to repent of that sin and turn to the king. There's more, there's more, there's more. There's a deeper life with the Lord. Repent, let him have more, more, more reign and rule in all areas of your life. Give up the finances, give up the marriage, give up the kids, give up your reputation, give up your school, give up your work. It's all for God, it's the king's. It all belongs to the king. It's irrelevant to say, you're Lord of this part of my life, but this part I'm still keeping for myself. Nothing is hidden to the king. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Take refuge in the king. Take refuge in the king. As we close out this message, let's prepare our hearts to sing with joy and gladness. The first song will be Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Let me just read some of the lyrics so that when we sing, our hearts are knitted together. As you hear your neighbor sing and the people up here sing, know that they're thinking about Psalm 2 as well here. Let me read this first. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God himself put on human skin. Please as man, man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Isn't that good news? Hark. The herald angels sing, glory, glory to the newborn king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 2. Thank you for how the gospel is so clear in Psalm 2. Thank you that you put Psalm 2 right in its position as the gatekeeper, as a doorkeeper to true worship unto you, Lord. Thank you for Psalm 2 that you make clear 
Jesus, that you are the king, the eternal king, who offers salvation graciously. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that they will kiss you as their king. They will give their lives to you as their king. They will have discernment to know what is true and what is false. They will be able to take the warning that you judge us with to heart. They will worship and serve you, Lord, Yahweh, with reverence and fear and respect. And they'll rejoice with trembling. And they'll do homage to you, Lord, and kiss you. So that we could be blessed and worship you forever as your friend as our master, as our Lord, as our King. Lord, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity annually to be able to remember that you came. But Lord, let's not just be a once a year remembrance. Let us be thinking about how you came. Every day. I pray that we'll respond humbly before you, Lord. That we'll repent and know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that we will long for the day when you, king, come back. When the kings and rulers are running away to hide from your presence, we'll be singing and rejoicing to see you come for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do not forget about your people, even in death. Thank you that we cannot escape you, king, even in death. Nothing could separate us from the love of Christ, you say. Nothing. If you are for us, who could be against us? So thank you, Lord. I pray this segment of our worship to you will just be so pleasing to you. We'll be able to sing our hearts out with genuineness, with reverence and fear and trembling. You will be pleased sitting on the throne hearing what comes from this body here. And Lord, I pray that you would edify the saints through the singing and let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, the King. In Jesus' name, amen.